Welcome to History 605, the South Dakota State Historical Society's podcast, where we talk to historians, curators, filmmakers, artists, and authors about how they interpret the past. I'm Dr. Ben Jones, South Dakota State Historian and Director of the State Historical Society. Join me and our guests as we think historical. So it is most appropriate and fitting that in our first year of our second century that this should also be a year of reconciliation between the Indian people and the non-Indian people alike. History 605 is sponsored by the Groover Family Trust and done in partnership with South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Welcome to the show. In this first episode of the second season, I have a conversation with Mary Stockwell, a historian who's written a book about President Grant's American Indian policy that he attempted to implement while he served as president in the 1860s and 1870s. Along with the president is a friend of his, a man named Eli Parker. Parker is one of these people in American history that you should know more about. Uh, An eminently fascinating, supremely talented individual. He's at certain locations and certain times in the late 19th century America. It plays a key role, but yet he's left out a lot of history books. One of the places where you may have seen him is if you've seen a painting or some type of image of the surrender of the Civil War. Eli Parker was a staff officer on Grant's staff at the end of the Civil War, and he's there at Appomattox. I'd like to read you just a a bit out of Mary Stockwell's book that kind of sets the scenes for inspiring uh, much of what Grant's policy was about. On Palm Sunday, April 9, 1865, Lee made his way to the McLean House in Appomattox to agree on the terms of the surrender. He greeted Grant and his staff politely, but was taken aback when Eli Parker reached out to shake his hand. His face flushed at the supposed insult of meeting a black man on Grant's staff. But then Lee looked more carefully into Parker's face and realized that he was an Indian. He regained his composure, took Parker's hand, and said, I am glad to see one real American. To which Parker replied, we are all Americans. This quote animates Grant's and Parker's efforts to bring the American Indians into citizenship. This was a goal of Grant's as he assumed the presidency in 1869. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Mary Stockwell and I and gain some insight into the complexities of all of the issues that President Grant's trying to manage. Welcome to History 605. Today, we have on our show Mary Stockwell. Mary is an author and retired professor of history at Lords University in Ohio. She's authored a book about Ulysses S. Grant and his efforts to support American Indians and to change American Indian policy, as well as other 
books about uh, 19th century America. Mary, welcome to History 605. Thank you for inviting me. Um, I was taken with the thrust of your book uh, is taking a, a new look at Grant, or maybe a new look isn't the right term. Maybe it's a more of a holistic look from Grant's perspective, um, particularly with his policies regarding federal relations. And, of course, this is dealing in, with him when he was president, uh, not a union general. So as he's president, he's trying to um, change federal policy with relation to tribes. And uh, But because he's president during the Battle of Little Bighorn, uh, we often view him through that lens. And so a lot of the, the corruption, the Indian agents, the treaties that were broken, particularly the Fort Laramie Treaty is one that in South Dakota is very uh, impactful for our state. Um, we often don't attribute to Grant that he attempted to create more of a positive uh, relations with the tribes, but you got started on this and looking into the subject, and I, I, I really enjoyed your book, and I wanted to ask you, um, what got you started on, on this subject and, and on Grant in particular and his role? Well, that I was I wrote a book called The Other Trail of Tears, The Removal of the Ohio Indians. And mm. I discovered something about Andrew Jackson in that book. You know, you say Andrew Jackson and people go wild and they say, Well, he tortured the Cherokee. I say, No, there was more to it than that. He upended American Indian policy established by Washington. He pretty much said, Go across the Mississippi River, I'm washing my hands of Indian policy mm. and the US government used to run everything from the president down. And after that, there was chaos in the West. The U.S. government doesn't go West and write treaties. It's just sort of a patchwork quilt of local officials who deal with the tribes. And um, Jackson didn't seem to care. To me, he mm -hmm. did to Indian policy what he did to the bank, uh, upended mm -hmm. the national system and broke it into a much smaller one. I sort of got a sense when I studied that, that Grant came along and he wanted to do something more at the national level. First, I thought, like I was taught, that he put all these missionaries in charge. And so when I got a chance to write a book on Grant, I was asked by the, um, the, the people who run the Grant Library. They came to me and said, would you write something about Grant's papers? We want people to use them, and we mm -hmm. want Grant to be a real person. And they said, what would you like to write about? I said, I got a feeling that he tried to change American Indian policy and put the president in charge. And maybe he used missionaries to do it. They gave me the contract. I began my research, okay. and I was stunned. I was correct that he wanted to put the president back in charge. Mm -hmm. But I was, I was stunned that everybody was wrong. He didn't want to use missionaries. He wanted to use the army, the army. to protect the Indians right. and give them time. Give them time to transform at their own pace mm -hmm. so that someday they could be American citizens. And can I say one thing about, you know, 1876, the Battle of the Little Bighorn. Sure. Again, I noticed anything anybody wrote about Grant was usually what he did in 1873, 74, 75, 76. And I started to say, no, wait a minute. He becomes the general of the Army in 1865. So for four years, he's going to have to deal with all the armies of the U.S. Mm -hmm. And then I said, he's elected in 68. Mm -hmm. He's president in 69. What's going on in all those years? Before we see the colossal battles uh, against the Sioux, he was, there was something more there, and the final battles show the failure to implement his policy to get support for his policy. But when he started, he tried, and right. maybe that's why 
that kind of inspired me to keep going with the book. I guess I'm I'm looking at all these government documents. I'm sitting in the National Archives. I'm mm-hmm. sitting in the, um, the Library of Congress, and I'm going, my God, somebody tried to do something different. And and his vision, where all these tribes, all these people, one day be American citizens, it did come true, at least in the end. Right, right. Well, let's back up for a second, then. You, you say he... He tried, and he was dealing with these issues while he was general of the Army as the Civil War was ending. Um, Reconstruction is starting, and the Army has this kind of two massive tasks, really, is to reconstruction, which is more or less an occupation of the former South, the former Confederate States, and then also the the path-building, the engineering, and the security of, of myriad wagon trains moving west. Uh, that's two very different tasks, and um, he's he's in charge of the army while that is beginning to hold on. And then he's elected president. Um, and despite all and, and all that, he has very little um, of his personal experience with Native Americans himself. Um, no, you know that amazed me because I tried to say, don't think about just Grant being the the Civil War person who right. was his family which he was very proud of, they go back to the founding of, you know, Puritan, Massachusetts. Yeah. All these generations of people, I realized as I studied it, every one of them, from his very first ancestor to his own father, had some kind of experience with Indians. Mm-hmm. He did not. He, he grew up at a time when the, the last few tribes in Ohio were living on reserves. He had no idea, probably, how that had happened, um, we only know a little bit about what he thought about Indians when he was a boy by the painting he drew when he was at West Point. Very beautiful portrait of two Indians who are trading goods. Mm. Um, in, the, in the few letters we have of him as a young man, he had no idea that the Wyandots were being shipped west out of Ohio. At the same time, you know, he had graduated from West Point. He had utter sympathy for the Indians mm-hmm. uh, in, as he goes west. And when he becomes the, the general of the armies, he he asks everybody. He asks Sheridan. He asks Sherman. He asks a, a General Pope. He asks his best friend, his secretary, Ely Parker, who's a, a Seneca Indian, help me form a policy that will end this bloodshed in the West. We're going to have to figure out a way. We all live together. Mm-hmm. You know, not just the wagon trains, the railroads, the miners, the farmers, the right. immigrants. My ancestors are coming to Kansas from a little town in Bohemia called Sazava, looking for farmland, and he tries to put a coherent policy together. When he steps into the White House, he's already got his Western Indian policy that he's been thinking about for several years. Hmm. Well, and you, yeah, you write uh, how his inaugural speech lays it all out there. Uh, can you can you tell uh, the listeners about his first inaugural speech and how he kind of uh, sets the tone for what he hopes to achieve. He stunned everyone because everybody's waiting for him to talk about the South. What's going on in the South? What are you going to do? Are you going to punish the Confederates? Are you going to treat them with sympathy? And he does talk about that, but he also talks about the Native Americans. And he says these amazing things. He goes, the original occupants of the land, the Indians, mm-hmm. I will favor any course forward toward them which tends to their civilization and ultimate citizenship. And the key is citizenship. Uh, nobody to date had really said that, except for a few people, if you go back into you know, Adam's administration, who had thought that someday citizenship was going to be the key. 
but he it, it sounds tinny and out of place and it isn't quite grammatical and I've read so many biographers and so many his, uh, histories of the West and the presidency, and they go, oh, what an odd, tinny remark. Why would he say that? Because he's been dealing with this since 1865, and he has a policy he wants to implement. Mm-hmm. So he's kind of sending this message. I'm going to try to deal with these people with greater respect. They've been here. He could have said they were here when my ancestors got here in the 1630s. And I'm going to figure out a way that we can bring everybody into citizenship. And what you said about the South, he wants the freedmen in. Of course, they're citizens. Again, my ancestors and so many Europeans, very poor, uh, Catholics and Jews and everybody coming from especially still Ireland, Central, Eastern, Southern Europe, and the Indians out in the far west. Somehow, I chose that word odyssey. We're in this great odyssey together, Mm -hmm. and he's going to figure out a way uh, to to do that. Again, what people don't know, what horse historians have forgotten, he had a policy in mind already. Right. Well, you, you uh, brought up uh, the title of your book, which I did not. I've, I'm remiss to mention it. It's uh, the title of Interrupted Odyssey, U.S. Grant and the American Indians. Um, you, you mentioned Eli Parker. Um, tell us a little bit about him. Uh, he has to be one of the most amazing <laughs> people in American history. Yeah. I, I, I'm not certain. I don't know every commissioner of Indian Affairs since him and the the person today serving uh, Joe Biden's administration. He's got to be the greatest, uh, certainly the most experienced. He was a Seneca Indian from Tonawanda, New York, and he, in many ways, was the opposite of Grant. He he just he soaked up knowledge. He wanted to be educated. He was a, a brilliant speaker, a brilliant reader. He was trained in the law. He could have been a lawyer if the state of New York had allowed him to sit for the bar exam. Hmm. When he couldn't do that, he became uh, an engineer, and he works on all kinds of projects. Uh, He helps his people, the Tonawanda tribe in Seneca, the Seneca, to win a case in the Supreme Court as an advisor, and they win it just before uh, Dred Scott is decided. So this, this decision is forgotten. Yeah. But he goes out west. He's He loves America. He's His favorite president is James K. Polk. He's a Democrat. If he could have voted, he liked Stephen Douglas. He said the West has to be settled. Mm-hmm. And his idea is um, all these tribes, uh, the world is changing. I had to change. My people changed. Um, whether you're the Sioux or the Cherokee or uh, you know the Apache, whoever, the, the world is changing. Um, let's figure out a way that you can get new livelihoods and and get ready to be citizens and to enter this giant odyssey, this giant melting pot with the rest of us. No no matter what has happened in the past, uh, the the future will be better if we unite. But he was brilliantly educated. He met met Grant in Galena uh, in Illinois where he had come to work on a project for the U.S. government as an engineer. He goes into this little leather goods store he absolutely loves the young man who's the clerk because he acts like, he says he acts more like an Indian than a white man. He said, white men talk a lot. And this young man always went and hid in the back. If you got to know him, he was pretty wonderful. And he said, that man was U.S. Grant. And he said, I just knew there was something spectacular about him. And they become great friends. Okay. And then in the Civil War, the tragedy, Grant gets, gets a commission finally. Yeah. But Poor Parker cannot get into the army until he finally comes in as a secretary and becomes Grant's secretary from Vicksburg onward. 
Oh, so he's never commissioned in the army. Parker is he, not. He, Parker is finally, finally uh, writes to Grant. Help me, help me get in. Um, Seward, who was then, uh, you know, I've been a senator from New York. He went to him and said, "Can't I fight in this war?" And Seward said, "This is a white man's war. Go home on your farm and let us fight it out." But finally, he wrote to people who he had known in Galena, including Grant, you know, get me some kind of a job. Yeah. And Grant, uh, Grant writes back to the government and says, this man is well-spoken. He's, he's beautiful, beautiful writer, perfect penmanship. Mm-hmm. We could use him as a secretary. Yeah. And that's what he becomes. So and he becomes a... He's the, Go ahead. He becomes a secretary. He, he is the man who writes down all of the uh, agreements at the surrender of Robert E. Lee okay. in Appomattox. Yeah. So that's, and then he stays with Grant and helps him formulate his Indian policy in the next uh, four years. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah, he's, he, I've seen photos of him in the uh, Civil War photos where he, uh, he's appeared in a uniform anyway. He must have gotten a commission yeah. somehow and then is serving as a, kind of the chief of staff or one of, among the staff and, in Grant's um, command headquarters. There's a, I, can I tell you something? I couldn't find a picture of it. I found a picture of him, just a drawing, you know, of him standing behind Grant. But they said whenever you saw him, he was right behind Grant. Yes, he had his uniform, but Parker had um, uh, an ink bottle tied with a rope around his, his front front buttons because that's what he was. He was he He's you know, just, he was the great secretary. Yeah. But he probably nobody came to the job of Commissioner of Indian Affairs with the brilliant education or the experience this man had. Right. But you still there's still this attitude of, oh well he was a token in there. Uh, some token Indian. Oh my God, no, he was right. uh, more brilliantly educated than anybody else in the government. Right. Well and, and Grant's orders are known in military circles for their clarity of thought and their um, um, brevity. Uh, I mean, they're, they're kind of the, the picture of how you want to write an order or write an instruction, under, get your troops to understand what you want to achieve, all this kind of stuff. You read, you read yeah, Grant's orders. I really think, I think Parker helped that yeah, because yeah. They, they were so worried. And Lincoln's administration, you know, was like, who are these idiots around Grant? They don't seem even to know how to write simple sentences. Yeah. But things changed once Parker arrived. Well, uh, okay, that, that uh, clears things up. That's great. Um, as Grant comes into office, though, um, he also is very aware if this policy is going to go through, he's going to have to deal with, uh, well, I think in many cases the term rapacious is probably accurate, the rapacious... Uh, settlers who are just um, going after everything and and uh, oh. and breaking treaties left and right, how, and and Grant recognizes that. So, walk us through how he tries to design a system that understands that uh, people will will not abide by the treaties. Well, I I think it's it, again when I I think of the the West post Andrew Jackson, mm-hmm. I think of chaos. Mm-hmm. You don't necessarily have the government going, making treaties everywhere like they did east of the Mississippi River. They're more sporadic. You've got local officials, territorial officials. You've got local militia working on their own. So you've got railroad companies uh, working on their own, uh, immigrants coming and buying land. It's, again, it's chaos. His attitude is very simple. It's first, the president's going to take charge of Indian policy. Mm-hmm. We're going back to what Washington did. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to put the Army in charge of the entire Indian service. 
not because uh, you know they. I think they're perfect men, but he said I can control them. Uh, if a soldier gets out of line, he massacres someone or joins in a massacre. I court-martial him. I get rid of him. Mm-hmm. They will. They will take my orders from the top down. Then he also said we've got to get them into small areas to protect them from this oncoming rush of people. Mm-hmm. We now say a small reservation is how terrible. Grant didn't look at it that way. He said no. We're going to try to find good country where the people themselves, the tribes, live, and then we will use the army. I'm going to use my army to protect the Indians from this rush of people. And and on these reservations, we can we can feed them, we can help them. We're going to give them time to transform. And his idea was most of the tribes would turn to um, to ranching. He said ranching will probably work out well. But he said mm-hmm. give them time to realize the change is happening. We protect them, we feed them, we house them, we clothe them. And a point will come when they realize, okay, this is how we want to live. And he said somewhere down the road they will become citizens of the United States, and we're going to blend together as one great people. Mm-hmm. And he, he simply told, um, especially Congress, who had controlled the Indian service and had used it to pay off supporters, you're out. Stay out of it for now. Yeah. Uh, give us a chance. We're going to remove everybody, put the army in charge, and we're going to take our time, but we're going to protect the Indians uh, from the onrush of you. It mm-hmm. was a very bold position to take because Western people uh, said, you're nuts. Western newspapers attacked him. Pretty much Congress across the board said, you're out of your mind. Mm -hmm. Many people in the far Western tribes disagreed. Uh, Tribes like the Cherokee in the Indian Territory said, we don't need your help. And reformers, people who wanted to really kind of wipe out Indianness from the Indians, wanted them to be Christianized and Americanized overnight, Mm -hmm. they really hated this policy because they said, you know, they, he talks civilization, but he doesn't mean it. He talks Christianization, but he doesn't mean it. He's letting these people take the time, maybe a generation or two, to transform into what they want to become in this big American mix. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, that's almost un-American. That's almost unchristian. Yeah. But it was, my God, he was, it, to see this policy unfolding, and I, again, to be sitting in the National Archives, the Library of Congress, and Read, up late reading all these government documents, I'm going, my God, I never knew this. This is stunning. Right. I guess I, I'm, I'm amazed that he tried it. Right. Well, it's astonishing that he tried it. I guess it's not, um, it's, it's a Herculean task in many ways, listing off all the people that you just did. All yeah. the, I guess you might say their political constituencies, Congress, uh, the missionaries and the different Christian groups, the and the Western tribes themselves, what what of yes. what was their opinion of this uh, this idea or this policy? Well, it it depended. It depended mm-hmm. on you know how 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 well did did it get implemented? The Sioux, led by Red Cloud, were a right. bit you know what's what's going on with this man? At first, he seemed to be so. It sounded actually very pro Indian. Mm-hmm. It sounded more pro Indian, definitely pro Sioux, than it did pro-miners. He, he, he hates the miners in the early part of his presidency. He hated them when he was the general of yeah. the army. Yeah. Uh, they, you know, the Sioux probably dealt with him the most. Um, you mean Grant the hated the miners? Yes, Grant hated the miners. Yeah. Um, the Comanches were kind of stunned when he was general of the army. He sends Parker down there to Texas. 
Mm-hmm. And the Comanches said, we had to flee because the Confederates got rid of us, ignored all the treaties. Now we're back, and they won't abide by the treaties. Um, he sends Parker down there, and Parker backs the Comanche. So in the yeah. beginning, it's like he's on the side of the Indians. It, he probably had the greatest opposition among the Indian territory uh, tribes from the Cherokees. The Cherokees who simply said, "We, you're out of your mind. We do not want to be American citizens. Mm-hmm. We're sitting here in our own territory. We can handle your Congress, your, your immigrants. We can handle the railroads. We don't need you. Go away. Oh, interesting. Okay. So it was, it was an array of opinions. But, boy, for that first year or so, Grant and Parker were very steady. We're going to implement this. Right. Well, then Parker runs into kind of the buzzsaw of Washington politics that ultimately caused him to um, leave his job. Uh, Can you walk us through um, how does, what's Parker's first, uh, your description of it in the book where he tries to um, get the supplies and the annuities and the things according to the treaty to Red Cloud and to uh, Rosebud reservations, both those um, yeah. are in South Dakota. That that uh, it, that fulfilling the treaty ultimately did him in the way it was portrayed by people in Washington. Can you walk us through how all that happened? I I have to tell you, I had never heard of the Board of Indian Commissioners. Yeah, I it, I had never heard of them, and I said, I go, I have a PhD in American history. Mm-hmm. I was I'm one of my major areas was the American West. I was trained by top Western historians. I never heard of these people. Mm-hmm. Grant had the idea in his Indian policy that we, he would have you know, white people, educated, educated Indians, and they'd be on this board of Indian commissioners that would oversee and kind of audit the Indian affairs to make sure everything was honest. He becomes president, and he's under great pressure. Oh, no, don't, don't you scholarly people, good people. We want wealthy white men top people to run this board of Indian commissioners. Mm-hmm. I, you know, it's terrible to be a historian. You want the story <laughs> to turn out well. <laughs> right, like, right. Don't do it. I'm, I'm saying don't do it. And I'm looking at it, and I'm going, here's his mistake. Here's his great mistake. The board of Indian commissioners, he chooses 10 extremely wealthy white men from the East. Yeah. Most of them had helped in the Civil War, uh, supplying soldiers, most of them were very devout Protestants, very, um, you know, uh, had helped in their own mission societies for Indians. Mm-hmm. They got on the board of Indian commissioners. Um, Parker thinks they'll advise me. Maybe they'll do some auditing. That's what Grant thinks. They immediately try to take control. Mm-hmm. They hate Grant. They hate Parker as a savage. They see the Indians as lesser beings who need to be stripped clean of their Indianness, mm-hmm. wash it out of them. Christianize them in our denomination, um, make them good little Americans, and uh, stop this foolishness of soldiers running things. And they vow to stop Grant, and they vow to stop Parker. They're led by a man named William Welsh. I I would have to call him uh, one of the not-so-nice men in American history. Mm -hmm. Uh, He... It's hard to describe people who claim they're reforming and helping the Indians, but they hate the Indians. And that's what Welsh was. And he goes after Parker. Uh, First thing they do is uh, the Board of Indian Commissioners influence the Congress to pass a law to um, disallow Army officers from serving in in the government. So that, right away, you're in the first, it's now 1870, the summer, uh, they get rid of 
all of those people. Hmm. And that's when uh, that's when Grant decides, well, then, okay, I'll put missionaries in, but I'm not going to hand it back over to Congress. Mm-hmm. Then Congress does something else to wreck its policy. They stop funding money to the whole Indian Affairs branch. They simply hold up the budget. And this mm-hmm. is, again, the summer of 1870. Uh, Parker and Grant have promised the Sioux uh, red cloud that they're going to supply them, and suddenly there's no money. Right. So Parker takes a chance. He says, is there anybody out there willing to to spend a million dollars to feed, to clothe, to supply all the tribes on the upper Missouri, especially the Sioux? You might never be paid if this appropriations bill doesn't go through. One man comes forward named James Bossler from Pennsylvania. He said, I'll take a chance. I'll ship a million dollars worth of goods out, out, out to the West. He does it. Everything's supplied. Congress then finally appropriates the money. Bosler's paid. Uh, Parker is delirious. Uh, he thinks, I've done a wonderful job. Mm-hmm. Okay, we'll put missionaries in if they want them. Grant and Parker decide, you know, if our policy is crumbling a bit, maybe we should start looking at what's going on in the Indian Territory. Maybe we should start thinking of moving everybody there, letting them have a constitution of their own. And then let's bring the Indian Territory into the U.S. as, as a state. Mm-hmm. So they write a thing called the Akmulgee Constitution. We're now heading into 1871. It's a, a kind of a rocky, how should I say it? The policy is on shaking ground, but they're still sticking with it. Mm-hmm. And Parker gets back to Washington, and he's told you are under investigation by Congress. William Welsh has accused you of pocketing a million dollars for yourself. Yeah. And you are going up on corruption charges. And and poor Parker won't won't come to the he will not come to Congress. He hides in his bed. It's like I am not going to this. I didn't do anything. How could you do this? I'm sick, I'm sick. Yeah. Grant finally steps in and hires a fellow by the name of Norton Chipman, who is this big lawyer who uh who went after uh Wurtz down, who ran the Andersonville prison and got oh. him uh, condemned. He yeah. picks him. He says, "You get you get up to Congress and you have to defend poor Eli Parker." But the story of what they put him through in Congress, Parker uh, attacking him, they allow the congressmen on this committee. They allow Welsh to come and be the prosecuting attorney, and to call witnesses and to attack Parker. But he said, "I'm going to destroy Parker and I'm going to destroy Grant." And the missionaries are going to take control of the entire West. And eventually the Board of Indian Commissioners will take control of the whole Indian department and will just kind of push the president and the commissioner of Indian Affairs out. It's one of the most tragic stories I ever read. Right. I, right. I, I, still, I still need, to, I still need to, to be a bit sedated thinking about it. <laughs> well, uh, and of course all this is in the lead-up to when toward the end of your book and the, toward the end of Grant's time in office, he's now beyond frustrated. The miners are hitting the... Uh, Deadwood and the yeah. and Custer, who he's not a big fan of. Oh, he Custer really at all. Custer. Yeah, and uh, um, in fact, Custer had been pointing out various corruption against the army. And I was uh, read a few years ago in another book that he testified before Congress. Custer did uh, about the corruption within the army uh, while Grant is president, and and Grant hauls him into the White House for a tongue lashing, I guess, and makes him. Uh, sit outside the office for several hours and never sees him, and then Sheridan tells him, well, head west, and then he winds up 
leading the Seventh Cavalry into Little Bighorn. Um, well, they, he he absolutely hated him. Yeah. Um, he said he's the kind of person that we're trying to get rid of in the army. His again, when we think of the army in the West, I, I what I, it's got to be Hollywood movies. Mm-hmm. Here comes the army to destroy the unsuspecting Indians. Right now, I know this from going around and talking about Grant. I mean, everybody says the army is evil. The army's destroying everybody, uh, and they and and I, I say that's not how Grant saw it. Mm-hmm. Grant saw it as there were outliers who didn't who people like um, people like Custer, who went off and murdered people on their own. And his idea was if I could get rid of people like that, and mm-hmm. I could get this flow of commands from me down mm-hmm. towards all my soldiers. To protect the Indians, not nobody slaughters, nobody, you know, no mm-hmm. massacres. You are protecting them from the onslaught of our often awful settlers, yeah. right? Especially in the miners, who pay no attention to anything, but also desperate farmers who want land. He goes, yeah. you and yeah. railroad men who want to go anywhere. Mm-hmm. He said, he goes, he saw him as he's an outlier. He's he's the bad soldier I can get rid of with a court martial. Right. But it's um but uh it's the again the tragedy is that um luckily I should say not luckily, but you know, Custer gets the Congress wants to hear from anybody who will criticize Grant. Yeah. Not necessarily because they all want to do a much better Indian policy. I'm not faulting all of them. Right. But they want to get control of that that too because this is the way they pay off so many of their against supporters. Mm-hmm. It was a money making system. For Congress, you know, say say I supported you. You want to run from from what state you're in, and I give you money, or I support you, and then you pay me off, and I get control of a an Indian trading post in the Dakotas. Well, then I hire somebody to go out there and run it. I give you a little money. I keep money. They keep money, and it's just a massive, uh, a massive system, a beckoning for corruption. Mm-hmm. And again, Grant thought and Parker thought, well, we can end this. Because they, you know, they fired all the traitors. Yeah. They fired all the non-military people, and they said, if you put us in charge, how much more, more it, it will run smoothly. Mm-hmm. No corruption on the part of the Indians, uh, on the part of the military for the Indians. And then you got Custer there saying, oh, they're all corrupt, anyways. Right. But right. so it, yeah, so he's 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 feeding them what they want to hear. And yes. That's what drove Grant nuts. Right. Well, and it's. It, uh, uh, Certainly, one army officer that um, has a huge influence on uh, this policy at this time is General Crook. Not not many people have heard of General Crook, but General Crook is invited to a meeting in the White House, I think, in November of 1875, where Grant basically says, "We've used the army to try to keep the miners out of the Black Hills. That's not working anymore. Now we're going to have to change things." So, walk yes. us through that that discussion. Well. It's 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 kind of tragic what happens once Parker is thrown out. You know, if once Parker is, well, I should say this. Let's go back to his trial. Mm-hmm. It's a real it, for me. It was a trial, mm. and um, sadly, most historians only get the summation of the trial. I said, no, I got to find the trial. Mm-hmm. I remember when the it, this old book came, and I'm reading it again at my kitchen table, going, "Help me, Jesus! This is the saddest story I ever read." But this ruins Parker. Yeah. And basically what happens is Parker's exonerated. He scolded for not asking Grant, you know, what should he do in a crisis like this? But Congress keeps passing more laws. They get rid of the treaty system. 
we it's very you know people immediately say treaties are bad. Treaties allow Indian chiefs to come and negotiate as equals with the U.S. government. Mm-hmm. Uh, you get rid of the treaties, they're not going to have a say in anything. The Congress also said, pretty much says the Board of Indian Commissioners controls Indian affairs. President, Indian Commissioner, you got nothing to say about it. They're going to pick the missionaries and they're going to run Indian affairs. Parker quits. Parker mm-hmm. quits in 1871. He says, this is insane. And Grant kind of says, well... Uh, thanks for your service. Don't let the door hit you on the way out. Grant mm-hmm. is beginning to lose interest in his Indian policy. He doesn't seem to realize that if you put these missionaries out west and kind of turn away, you're creating greater chaos than what Andrew Jackson probably had created. And he simply won't listen to anybody. Many of his Indian commissioners come to him after Parker and say, you know, there's trouble out west. We're going to have to reconfigure our policy. And he simply says, it's working, it's working. If there's any trouble, let's just move everybody to the Indian Territory. We'll all become a state, and everything will go along mm-hmm. well. It's it's not going to work this easily. Yeah. I don't know if it would have worked e- that easily if Parker had stayed in and the Army had stayed in. You begin to see the tribes themselves rise up against the changes in the West, not just his policy, but you know the changes, the crowding of all the people, the the destruction of the buffalo, the destruction of everything, and the Modoc rise up first in 1873. We're not going to our reservation. And when the Modoc War finally winds down and Grant sends General Canby out there, who's murdered by the Modoc in the peace negotiations, Grant changes. Mm-hmm. This changes him, and he begins to lose his sympathy for the Indians. It's like, look, at I've done everything for you, and you murder my person, my general who came out to win you a, a, a treaty to help you get a new reservation, he washed his hands in 1874 when the Red River War breaks out. You know, he's like, I, yeah. I, you know, these people are not obeying me. They're not coming in and staying on their reservation. They're running wild. Well, they're going out to kill the buffalo hunters. He, he knew that. Yeah. And he just says, Sheridan, you handle that. Yeah. Same thing. To me, the tragedy is the Dakotas, because he had been a defender, a defender of the Sioux, and he's got all these miners saying there's gold there. Mm-hmm. He has Custer going up there saying, you know, maybe there is gold up here. And a point comes where Grant simply washes his hands of it all, and he says to the Sioux, you know, you, um, you're going to have to sell the Black Hills. Yeah. You can sell it. You can rent it. You just hand it over. This country that we promised you, and I promised you, and mm-hmm. I defended you, and I set up an Indian policy to protect a country like this. He's like, I'm washing my hands of it. I can't prevent the slaughter. I can't hold back my own corrupt citizens. Mm-hmm. And once the fighting breaks out, again, he steps back, and he lets his generals uh, you know, take on the Sioux. To me, it's, it's a tragedy. The tragedy for me was here is a general who comes out of this horrible Civil War, hating war, mm-hmm. dreaming of a world where there's no war. His second inaugural, he talks about, we're going to disband our armies. We're not going to even have navy someday. And then after being this man who promises, I will respect the Indians and protect them, I think when he loses Parker, he loses interest, and he washes his hands of it, and there, he becomes the most memorable president who's going to fight the most memorable Indian wars that will fill up our history books mm. and our movies up until the present time. And he, he fails. And Parker, Parker, you know, 
will blame him that he was swept away by too many wealthy men in the Washington. He got caught up with uh, power, Mm -hmm. and he lost his original ideals that brought him into the White House. Hmm. And it's it's a tragedy. Yeah. Well, toward the end of of your book, you talk about the Miriam Report and then kind of how it... um, I wonder if you could take us from that and kind of the direct line that you weave right into Franklin Roosevelt's uh, Indian Reorganization Act. Yeah, the 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 kind of the the tragic thing is you've got Grant with this vision of somehow there's going to be citizenship what what does that mean what does it mean to be a citizen he never quite formulates it again by the time he leaves office all his hopes are pinned on the indian territory will become a state for the indians all the tribes can come and live there um he's but his vision beyond that is toppled that they can move at their own pace that's that just disappears in the midst of, of uh, all the opposition to him. The people who come up after Grant, um, people who call themselves reformers, people who say we want to get out there and help the Indians civilize in a way, Christianize in a way Grant never did, um, their attitude is let's figure out what are the Indians doing wrong that, that keeps them in such immense poverty and such backwardness. And you know what they're going to say. Um, they must become Christian. Mm-hmm. Let's get the kids into these schools and, and train them away from the reservations. And then let's also make these Indians landowners. Let's give everybody their 60 acres or their 80 acres, 100, and you know how they divide it up. Right. Yeah, and they begin to say, well, allotment. In the 1880s to the 1920s, we'll allot their land, meaning um, we'll give them their small but portions of land, and then we'll sell all the rest off, and there'll be small farmers or small businessmen, and that way they'll slowly enculturate into the wider society. Their children will return from these schools, the Indianists wiped out of them, they'll come home to their families who are small farmers, ranchers, and businessmen, and isn't it going to be wonderful? Isn't it going to be happy? Mm-hmm. No, it's a disaster, because yeah. Grant didn't want Indianists wiped out of them. He respected them. Parker certainly didn't, but the idea that you could be an, a, a Sioux and an American, a Shawnee and American, that we, we're not at that point yet. We think to be an American, we all have to be exactly the same and do the same things. That's, this is when you begin to see, I think, the stuff that we're looking back at now and saying, this was not right. We should have maybe gone at a slower pace like Grant wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, even I think about Oklahoma. Oklahoma enters the Union not as an Indian state, but just as an American state with uh, ranchers, farmers, businessmen who come and take over the state, and the Indian landholding goes down. The Probably by the time you get to the 1920s, the Indians are suffering if they're on reservations. Uh, the rates of tuberculosis are horrible. Uh, the despair is horrible. Um, they are not economically self-sufficient. They might all be citizens after 1924, but they're suffering. Mm-hmm. So the Merriman Commission says something's got to be done. What happens is amazing. In the 1920s, you start to see uh, uh, many writers, many artists, poets, philosophers, they begin to study American Indian culture, and they say, these people are tremendous. Yeah. They were not savages. They had a beautiful culture, and we should bring that culture back into our own in the modern world. It can help everyone. 
um, reformers begin to say, you know, we've got to rethink about rebuilding the, the very identity of the Indians. Their tribes can come back. They, they don't have to be little copies of, I don't know, some late 19th century vision of what an American is. Mm-hmm. It eventually, this, this, uh, people start to write who are Native Americans. Um, Parker has left a book about how wonderful the, 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 um, the Iroquois were. He said they weren't savages. They were brilliant people with a brilliant culture. Mm-hmm. You see American Indians, many Sioux, writing about themselves, what yeah. it was like, like the soul of the Indian, my Indian boyhood. We get Black Elk Speaks, that stunning book. Yeah. And, and suddenly politicians start to say, well, well we, should, we should incorporate this. And that's when FDR comes along. And in 1934, he writes the Indian Reorganization Act, in which he said... He says something amazing. He goes, you know, Grant's on the right track. Um, citizenship is good. But it's possible to be a citizen of the United States and still reconstitute all these tribes. And you can, you can be a Shawnee. You can be whatever your tribe is. And you can have tribal government. And you can have kind of a dual citizenship. And I, the president, I'm going to take over again. He finally gets rid of the Board of Indian Commissioners. Mm. And he begins to say, um, we're going to get as much federal help as we can to help the tribes, help them educate themselves on their reservations. If they want to stay, fine. If they want to leave, fine. Mm-hmm. They're Americans now, fully guaranteed all the rights under the Constitution, but they may write their own constitutions and reconstitute their land uh, and run tribal government again. And there's something else. There's, let's, let's respect these people. Let's respect these tribes. We are now probably in the flowering of FDR's attitude towards the tribe, which is, again, he's being helped by all these scholars, everybody who's writing. There's immense respect now for uh, American Indian culture, mm-hmm. immense respect. It's probably, you know, it's tipping the balance away even from <laughs> the United States and American citizenship, but at least it's, a, it's an attempt to say there's got to be a way we can all live together. I, and I think of poor Grant. He, if he could have said that, hey, maybe we could have citizenship of a tribe and citizenship in the U.S. That was the key FDR finds. Yeah. So is there is there evidence, though, that FDR, as he pondered this, or his, his staff coming into the White House in 1933, 34, um, is looking back to Grant specifically, or they're just they're just kind of responding to the you, politics I, of the you time? Know, I, I, I think there, there are people... You know, within like uh, John Collier, the the fellow right. who's going to be the uh, Indian commissioner, he uh, he understands what has happened. Yeah. They they begin to look back and they see it. FDR thinks, you know, this is going to go through so fast. We'll get this through, and everything will be fixed. It's it's Ugh. not going to be fixed. There's big <laughs> resistance. <laughs> it's there's yeah. big resistance uh, out in the West. So he gets like a modified Indian Reorganization Act, and the struggle continues. Yeah. But I, 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 I know he wanted, you know, the, the idea that the president takes charge, mm-hmm. like Grant did, and failed. But it's almost going back again to Washington's attitude. Right. Washington up through up through Jackson, which is this is a continuing problem. It's better if we work at a national level uh, on this. We can't let this be something local. But it's not, you know, that doesn't end it. Mm-hmm. There's still a great rift between the new major political parties, the two of them from Roosevelt onward. The Democrats tend to follow what FDR wanted. Mm-hmm. We can have this kind of 
you can have a tribal government, but you can also be citizens. We'll keep helping you. You decide where you want to live. It's up to you. But the attitude of many of the Republicans, I'm thinking of Eisenhower, is, no, this is crazy. We shouldn't have reconstituted the tribes, get people off the reservations, get them yeah. into jobs, into cities, and the, the battle continues to the present day yeah. uh, on what, what's the right way to go. Right. Well, and it's, it's Coolidge, I think, in response to the Miriam, Miriam Report and some of these other things that lobby for citizenship while, while then uh, kind of leaving the reservations under the old system. I think. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's. You know what I often do when I, um, like, if I if I'm invited somewhere to talk about this, the first thing I do is I'll just show a map, of like maybe it's about 18. Uh, I'll look 1868 when Grant's running for president, or I'll go back even to 1865 and I go, okay, now look at this is where all the tribes are, and then I go, okay, now look who's coming, and then I will show everybody coming, and of course I say, and my ancestors are coming too out west, right. And I simply say, okay, what would you do? Right. And I say, I, I go, I am going to hand you a magic wand. You have all the power at this date and time to fix it perfectly. Right. Go for it. Go for it. Knock yourself out. Go yeah. for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the complexities are, you know, when you talk about uh, immigrants from Eastern Europe coming, uh, the land policy yeah. is so cheap, the, safe, the social safety net is non-existent. Um, so, yeah. f so farming has to happen. Um, I mean, the economy's just wired that that has to happen so that it has to be. everyone's not impoverished. And then, no, and uh, that's it. And that's and yeah. I and like I often say to the people I speak to, isn't that good? Isn't that good? Right. Yes. Except if you're well, red then cloud, you, and then it's not so good. Yes. Yeah. I, <laughs> yeah. Do you want to stop it? No. 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 Okay. Right. I, it, right. Yeah, and I, I, I love when, you know, somebody holds up their cell phone. I go, do you want to be in the civilization where we use cell phones? Okay, that's, that's going to be, we're going to have to do this old thing called settling the West. Mm -hmm. but, I, but how we all come together and all figure out how we can live in this together, I, another thing I'd like to say, and I said this way before the mess in Ukraine, but I put it at the end of my American a book on the removal of the Ohio tribes. I said, I'm beginning to understand Looking back at some of these issues, I go, we're like a, a, a we're like a, a testing ground for what democracy really is. How do all of us coming together, uh, respected, our dreams should be allowed to be fulfilled? How do we do it without crushing somebody else? Right. It's we're at the beginning of it, and I I think it did Tocqueville. Remember, he said, "Oh man, we can watch America. They keep such great records, <laughs> and we're watching <laughs> democracy." <laughs> A democracy uh, form, and I think it did Tocqueville. I thought of him when I was down in the archives. When you go to the National Archives, mm -hmm. all the stuff on the American Indians, so detailed for hundreds of years on microfilm. And I go, we, well, at least we kept the records, and we can look back. What could we have done differently? And if we're in a situation now, how can we do things together? I believe democracy is only beginning. Right. In in terms of all oh, this mutual decision making, we have to do caring for each other and our own dreams. I I hope we're at the start of it. Yeah. Well, as you said, you know, democracy is happening every day. It's happening every yeah. day. Um, I I I was thinking about. Uh, we'd like to think that uh, the evil people or the or you can call them whatever you want. I guess the folks of the 1870s and 1880s, we wouldn't make those same decisions, but. Um, what questions yeah. could come out of that era that we might use to examine our own, our own lives 
in our own culture today, do you think? That what, what if, if U.S. Grant uh, appeared here, what would he say, well, look out for this, that, and the other? What, uh, what kind of questions should we be asking about our culture today? You know, what a question. I sometimes think, and I always wonder this, and I, I don't have any evidence of this. I, you know, I haven't looked at it. But if a general had to bring all, this, all these people together to do one thing, and they, he had to supply them, and he had to feed them. I think that's why Grant was so obsessed with livelihood. He mm-hmm. would say, no, it's a transformation of livelihood. Quit talking culture. Quit talking civilization. How are we going to survive at the level of how do, how do we make money? Mm-hmm. How do we feed each other? How do we live together? How do we share the water? Mm-hmm. How do we do all of these things? I think he would bring people back to an extremely fundamental level of survival. And he would, uh, he would say something like, you know, I saw the change going on in the West. It was going to affect everybody. Mm-hmm. Instead of looking back saying, oh, there goes the buffalo, or, oh, boy, come on, railroad, take over. Mm-hmm. He's, he was like, we're all here together. We're all Americans. We're under the same law, the same constitution. How do we share it? How do we all survive together? It's, I, I think of this, you know, when I hear global warming, global warming, are you for it or against it? Is it real or not? <laughs> I, I, could, I could hear you right. saying, wait a minute. Okay, we all need electricity. How are we going to do that? Okay, we all need transportation. How are we going to do that? I think he would force us to look at, go back to the most fundamental thing of our livelihood, our survival, how we make money, how we take care of our families, get an education. How do we do that in the shared way that we don't ruin the world? Mm-hmm. And we don't ruin each other's lives. And mm-hmm. uh, again, we're a, uh, we're a laboratory of democracy. And I look back at the, the things we did right, the things we did wrong. I go, we're the living laboratory. We should be, you know, instead of getting one side or the other, which we tend to do, good and evil. Mm-hmm. What 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 could have been done? What should have been done? Uh, and take that attitude then. Uh, stand right now and see what we could do. Maybe we talk to each other more than just shouting, mm-hmm. <laughs> yay and nay. Yeah. yeah. Well, Mary, this has been a wonderful conversation, and it's a, it's a wonderful book. I highly recommend it. Interrupted Odyssey, U.S. Grant and the American Indians. Uh, Mary, thanks for joining us today on History 605. Oh, thanks for, thanks for uh, calling me and talking to me, and I wish I could come out to the Dakotas and see all you guys. Maybe I well, will. Well, yes. Anytime you need to do some more research in our archives or, or head it out this way, let me know. Thanks a lot. Yep. We'd like to thank Howard and Dorothy Groover for their passion for history and the support of the South Dakota State Historical Society. It's through gifts such as theirs that we're able to tell South Dakota's history. We'd like to thank our partner, South Dakota Public Broadcasting, and most importantly, we'd like to thank you for listening. Please rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to find podcasts. We'll be back in a couple weeks with another episode of History 605.